Hi there, and welcome to The Works. I'm Ben Peltier. And I'm Ben Che. For the past two weeks, the streets of Hong Kong and the ongoing protests have provided a fertile ground for photographers and photojournalists from all over the world. This week, we're beginning the show with one of the great international photojournalists, a man who was not in town to cover the protests, but was here in September to open an exhibition of his own work. He's Paris-born photographer Elliot Erwitt. He's generally known for his candid black-and-white street photographs and describes street photography as an art of observation. In his 60-year career, he's also shot portraits of such luminaries as Marilyn Monroe, Jackie Kennedy, and Che Guevara, as well as one of his favorite subjects, dogs. We talked to Elliot Erwitt as he opened his exhibition at the F-11 Photographic Museum in Happy Valley. I uh, certainly expect to find something interesting because if it's not interesting, I don't take the picture. But there's subjects in everything. If you just walk around, you will see something of interest all the time. You can just walk in the street. Picture opportunities are everywhere. You don't have to sit out especially. Like his fellow Magnum photographer Henri Cartier-Bresson, Elliot Erwitt is a seeker of the decisive moment. He was born in Paris, spent most of his childhood years in Italy, but moved with his family to the United States when he was 10. He began photography even at high school, kept it up after being drafted into the U.S. Army, and moved on to commercial work for magazines such as Life and Holiday. His works are known for reflecting everyday life with wit and humor. In 1953, after leaving the army, he was invited to join Magnum Photo by founder member Robert Kappa. The exhibition, Best in Show, features more than 50 iconic images shot over the past 60 years. You don't take iconic pictures. Sometimes the picture survives a, a period of time and it becomes familiar and therefore iconic, but you don't start out by saying today I'm going to take an iconic picture. That's nothing that you can predict. For personal work, I don't have a plan. I just go out and take pictures. I go outside to take pictures. I take pictures inside. I take pictures at events. Uh, I don't have any specific program. My personal work is just where I am when I travel and what I see without any preconception. I just do what I do. Erwitt is known for getting up close and personal with the subjects. He has this advice for budding street photographers. The advice to uh, people who are afraid of, a of, a of approaching stra strangers is to do it in such a way that they are not noticed. If you're not noticed, then you don't have to be afraid. But if you are afraid of approaching strangers, I would suggest that you take a Valium before you go out to take pictures. It's an anti-anxiety pill. I mean, unless you're going to do something mean or unpleasant, there's no reason why you should be afraid of taking pictures of people. Maybe if you're shy, but if you're shy, you should get over it because you shouldn't be too shy if you're a photographer. 
I prefer to use a black and white camera with film, but I have nothing against uh, color. It's, uh, it's something different, but it's just less interesting for me. Black and white photos, I can control them better. I can make them in my studio, print them and everything. And then I just think it looks better for the kind of pictures that I take. At the other end of the spectrum, one of his favorite recurring subjects is somewhat less intimidating to approach. He has published four books on dogs. The reason why the, there are many pictures of dogs is because dogs are everywhere and they make good subjects. And they're very nice. Dogs are friendly. They bark in every language. They're generally sim very sympathetic. A good photographer should have a good visual sense, be able to compose a picture properly, and um, have pictures that have some kind of content, or some kind of uh, commentary on the human condition. That's always desirable. And um, if in the end it has a little bit of magic, a little bit of wonder, well, then maybe it makes a good picture. The piano has been part of jazz since the early days of ragtime, and much of the earliest jazz music was played and developed in the parlors of houses of ill repute, brothels. The piano trio began to become more prominent in the late 1920s. The great Bix Beiderbecke founded one of the early popular ones. Artists like Jelly Roll Morton, Teddy Wilson, Nat King Cole, Bill Evans, Duke Ellington, and Oscar Peterson followed suit. Today, Japanese pianist Hiromi Uehara gives a new face to the piano trio, combining jazz with progressive rock influences. She came to Hong Kong last month with her group, The Trio Project, which she says she wants to have the breadth of sound of an orchestra. Jazz pianist Hiromi Uehara, the instrument she plays was not her own choice, but that of her mother. Frustrated by her own lack of musical ability, Hiromi's mother found her a private piano teacher in their hometown of Hamamatsu when she was just six years old. It was her teacher that introduced her to the world of jazz. Uh, my first piano teacher happened to be a big fan of jazz music, and she has so many LPs, and, and she told me, you know, it's all the music is improvised and they play what they feel at the moment and I just really love the concept and I just really, you know, was interested and attracted to the world of improvisation. I was really in love with piano and the instrument has so much to learn and I never felt that I learned enough from the instrument and I think it takes my lifetime to really understand the instrument. So I'm still on my way to understand the instrument. <laughs> Hiromi performed with the Czech Philharmonic Orchestra at 14. A chance encounter with Czech Korea three years later led to her playing with him on stage the following day. Released in 2003, 
Her debut album Another Mind was co-produced by Imad Jamal. Now a well-established player and composer, she blends jazz with progressive rock and classical music. Last month, she performed in Hong Kong with the other members of a current trio, bassist Anthony Jackson and drummer Simon Phillips. Well, we got together in 2011, and we made our first album as a trio, and it's called Voice. And um, then we made two other albums, and the latest one's called Alive. I first met Anthony when it's about 12 years ago when I made my very first album. I had him as a special guest and since then I always wanted to have you know make a full album with him and at 2011 I thought right time has come so I asked him to be part of the trio and he was so thrilled to be part of it. Then more I wrote the song for the trio I started to hear uh, the clearer image of the drums. I thought about Simon and I asked Anthony how he thought about Simon and he said it's a great idea and you know, because they've been playing together on and off for the past 40 years. You know, I gave a call <laughs> and he was very excited to be part of it and you know, we met and we We've been playing just so many shows together and it's been always amazing musical journey and adventure and it's never enough. <laughs> Her performances are known for their spirit of improvisation, virtuosity and spontaneity. She says that to get the huge sound she likes, she needs to play the piano with her whole body. My songs, where it's written is very written, but where it's not written is not written at all. It's just chords. So we try to make something new every day, and so we want to surprise ourselves too. You know, we want to surprise each other. So just trying to find the new ways of speaking every day in music. The most scary thing for me is repeating. So I always just try to find somewhere that I have never been before. You know, it's an adventure. It's risky, but when there is more risk, more fun it is. Mexican artist Miguel Chevalier uses the computer to create his virtual and digital art. For him, technology brings the opportunity to open up and explore uncharted fields in the visual arts. Now on show at the Puerta Roja Gallery, Digital Paradise is his first exhibition in Hong Kong. Chevalier's computer-generated flowers mirror the constant transformations of the plant kingdom. A 
my background is in, in reality is quite traditional. I study the fine arts, l'école des beaux arts in Paris. When I was uh, in the school, it was at the beginning of the computer. You know, it was difficult to access, but I think it was very exciting for me to use these tools. For me, I'm very exciting to participate in the world, uh, in the art of the today, you know? And it's, it's a challenge, it's not easy. So at the beginning we are thinking how we can combine different video projectors, uh, different sensors because you can interact with this piece. So here I create a different virtual seed and each seed they generate sort of plant and these plants they stay a certain time by random and when they die they generate a new seed, it's a new variation of, of this seed. This is not a video in loop, it's a generative, it's a software. In, in this software, I integrate these different virtual fractal flower seed variation at the infinity. For me, the digital is one of the opportunities to, to explore the possibility of artificial life. very interesting how the, the people have the, some relationship with the nature. Uh, here is an art artificial nature, of course, but the, of course it's a computer paradise because more, more and more young people believe in the digital. But in the case of this, it's much about the relationship with the notion of the garden and the flowers. The music of the Swedish pop group ABBA was the inspiration for the West End musical hit Mamma Mia. But the musical's plot does not focus on the group, but on family and friendship on a Greek island. In this week's show, we end with a preview of the production currently in Hong Kong, with almost the entire cast. Well, I'm here with uh, Sarah Poyser and Nick Evans, the director and star of one of the stars of uh, Mamma Mia, who is here, here in Hong Kong. And you're... you're in Hong Kong at the uh, middle of a bit of a run, aren't you? Where yeah. have you come from? Uh, well, we, we've been on a world tour of, uh, with the international tour of Mamma Mia, so we, we've had a great year. We've been to South Korea for uh, quite a long time, about five months, yeah. uh, and then we were in Switzerland. We did a summer season back in the UK, uh, and now Hong Kong, which is so exciting. We're having really a wonderful exciting, time. Yeah. So, Sarah, for you, yeah. you've been involved in this show now for a number of years in your career. Yeah. Um, what's it been like having having done the show so many times and and still doing it and it, has it has it been a wonderful ride it seems like it must well have been. that's why i'm still doing it because it is the most fantastic ride yeah i love the show i'm really passionate about the show and every time i come back to it it's always different because it's different cast and different territories that we go to and therefore different audiences and i think that's always quite challenging when you go to a new place to find out how the audience are going to respond to it and kind of work with them. Well, let's talk about the show, this, this epic show, as you've mentioned. Yeah. It's been enjoyed for years and years and years. And I was, I was amazed to learn that ABBA as a group was only active for, for 10 years, which was a long run in their mm -hmm. own right. Yeah. But this show has been running since 1999 in various forms around the world yeah. and continues to be. So in some ways has eclipsed, in terms of at least longevity, 
the original That's true. Film. That's true. And I think the amazing thing is, you know, night in, night out, you still see young kids and teenagers come and see the show and get the same sort of reward from that wonderful music as people were getting in the 1970s. There's something about the music. It just, just survives. It keeps going. And I think it's, it's a joy to see that passing on. You mentioned the music. What's your favourite bit? <laughs> well, I, th I say this often, but I think without being cliche, the winner takes it all is the most beautifully written song and piece of drama. If you took away the music, the lyrics alone are just beautiful. But there's a reason that Waterloo won the Eurovision Song Contest, <laughs> because it's a fantastic pop song. And everybody's involved in that, so I love doing that with the rest of the cast as well. For people who haven't seen Mamma Mia, or for even uh, for whom uh, the music of ABBA is not really, you know, current in their, in their memory, uh, what can you tell us, uh, what is a jukebox musical and why is this particular one so successful? A jukebox musical takes the, the music of a band and sort of weaves it into a story, but I think that's the key, you sort of hit on it there, that the, the, songs itself, the songs themselves are a wonderful experience, but actually it's having a story that will weave them together. This is a, a great piece because it's all about family, it's about mothers and daughters, fathers and daughters, boyfriends and girlfriends, best friends, and I think the audience come and, and every night there's a connection. There's something of your own life is being portrayed on stage. And I think that's why it yeah. survives and sort of grows, really. Yeah. So, uh, with the uh, with the storyline in itself, it, this was actually put together after the music was written. The music yeah. wasn't written as a show. Mm -hmm. Does it hang together for you? I think uh, obviously well, uh, well, the I think it certainly hangs together for me, and right. I think 15 years of this show running, then I think that's the proof. It absolutely hangs together, and I think what Catherine Johnson did brilliantly was took those songs and created this fantastic story from them. And sometimes it does feel like the songs have been written for the show because they fit in so seamlessly. It's a brilliant piece of drama. Sometimes audiences here in Hong Kong can be a bit reserved when it comes to a really extroverted show. I mean, look at this costume. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but, but how have audiences reacted? You've been running in Hong Kong now for, for a bit of time. Yeah, well, I mean, certainly from, from my perspective, we, we said that people might be reserved or respectful and, and, and to, to watch the drama. So what actually you get in Hong Kong is the perfect combination. Mm. You get people who listen to the quiet bits and then join in with the bits that when we welcome them to kind of get involved. And the response at the end of the show, the applause have been su surprisingly brilliant and warm. And it's just what we need. It's been fantastic. That's the word I'd use is warmth. There's a real warmth about Hong Kong audiences. They seem to, to really support you. And it's a two-way process. You know, it's 50% what we do and 50% that joy that the audiences seem to bring and it's a, it's a great escape it's, it's a great fun night out for them as well as us <laughs> now in addition to you two we've brought uh, actually you've brought in a, a whole host of the cast almost the entire cast uh, it seems Pretty much, yeah. uh, of the show um, so you were going to end the show he, our show with a production number from you guys yeah uh, what can you do to introduce that one for us I think Dancing Queen is one of the most famous songs that Abba have written and I think um, it's one of the ones that we really enjoy doing as well. It's a bit of an iconic song, really. Mm. And for say. me, it showcases the two elements we've got. I'm not just saying this, our wonderful sort of lead performers who have just, you know, such skill as singers, dancers and actors, but also this wonderful ensemble who really, yeah. really work They're so amazing. hard. So, so I think Dancing Queen is a great way to show off both of those elements of yeah. our show. Looking forward to it. Thanks so much. Great. Thank you.
like it.